To my listeners, welcome back to the next episode of Slaves to the Algo. We continue the conversation with Ian Miles of Area 51 on cognitive biases and how learning may well be the only way to avoid being slaves and to becoming masters of the algorithm. Welcome back to my continuation of Slaves to the Algo with Ian Miles, Area 51. We talked a lot about cognitive bias and how AI is changing uh, areas like medicine and um, things in ways in which we don't even understand. So Ian, you were telling me uh, when we did the last episode about how cognitive bias is something that um, neither the human being who's programming the machine nor the machine actually knows and we're just doing it. And this <laughs> cognitive bias we know is actually presented as human beings. Sometimes we look at something and we say, I'm processing it because my mind has a set of filters. Are we feeding our own biases into the AI? Is it happening consciously? Is it happening unconsciously? I, I think we are. I think, the, I think the problem area is what I call the surf zone between the beach and the ocean. The, the beach is the beach and the ocean is the ocean. The tricky bits where it comes together. And if you look around the computing landscape generally, um, uh, people out there will tell us that uh, a lot of the blockchains have never been cracked, but they've been hacked. So social engineering has tricked people uh, uh, to get workarounds that which they can't achieve through mathematical crunching, uh, through, uh, through the cryptography. And I think that's interesting because the weakest link is the human. Um, the, Ross Anderson, who's, uh, I don't remember his exact title, but he's, I think, head of uh, computing technology at Cambridge University, he says, once you've solved for authentication, the rest is just accounting. And then the tricky bit is for computer systems to recognize who it is that they're engaging with. Once you're securely onboarded, then you're fine. And I've got a really fascinating uh, journey just now around two-factor authentication where I can't get back into some accounts. So it's that interface between humans and technology. And that's where I think cognitive bias is interesting because that's when you kind of bring the humanities and the technologies together. It's that surf zone between these two different worlds. And, that, and I've always believed that design uh, makes the world a better place and bringing creative energy onto any problem. You can, by asking left field questions or questions that have never been asked before, you can move to a better space. And but cognitive biases requires, you know, requires us to look in the mirror and say, well, what are my own? Um, and it's a little bit more than nature versus nurture. Uh, Adizis, the management consultant, will talk about, you know, the, there's, uh, personality, that's what you're uh, born with. That's just, it comes free. Uh, behavior is how you've been raised. What type of household were you raised in? Um, what were the values of uh, the religion, the ethnicity, the culture? You know, what has shaped you? And then there's this top layer, which is stuff you've figured out for yourself, which is your own personal style. You know, I, I don't agree with dad and granddad, and I'm going to do it different. Um, and so we've got to work Again, through uh, these layers. The question people. I have for you is when you talked about this, sorry to interrupt you there, but no problem. It, what it seems out here is that the cognitive bias, you know, in a normal human setting, I'm talking to you. Mm. And if I display a bias, you would say, hey, uh, can you stop and think about it? There's a conversation between a couple of different people. Yes. In AI, because you're feeding it into the machine, you're accelerating the bias. And then it's like kind Ampl of amplifying. worrying. You're exactly, it's exactly that. You're amplifying it. You know, I, I got a 22-year-old. I'm constantly being corrected for, you know, dad, you can't say that. That's not appropriate language that now was appropriate for me 30, 40 years ago. Um, but, you know, if you get a millennial around, you'll get lots of uh, instruction. 
Uh, and the, the, the positive example, I think the example I wanted to spend a little bit of time on is this hiring process. Um, when we chatted last, it was giving you a, a negative example of, uh, of Amazon's hiring uh, machine in, in Scotland. But there was a very positive example which came out of China um, by a French uh, cosmetics company, uh, L'Oreal. And there's, there is a lot of discrimin go, discrimination goes into judging people, um, like which university did you go to? There's a lot of snob value around, you know, Ivy League universities or, or what grade did you get? Uh, what subject did you study? Um, I, uh, I've not been discriminated against, but I can tell you, first time I came to Asia and I was like a designer, what's that? You know, you're not, you know, that's, <laughs> like, that's lower than an engineer. You need to be a doctor, lawyer, architect. You know, so there's, there's professional discrimination in different cultures. And I try and explain to well, my students here in Singapore, the people making all the money in the States are the coders. There's not, there's, the bankers make good money, but it's the coders that are making the real money. And, but here there, there doesn't seem to be the same passion for coding, but that, that's just cultural difference. But the example I wanted to just refer to, because it's very interesting, I think it puts a, a fresh twist on hiring. Um, instead of looking through standard pilot resumes and then having a machine sift and sort based on, I don't know what, uh, they decided to publish a problem statement and they put that out as a challenge. And I think that's a much healthier way of trying to get to know someone. It's like, I've got a problem, how would you tackle it? Now, you might get that question if you get to an interview, but they actually put it out uh, a layer further in the application process. So, you know, clever for them. Nice. They've got a super abundance of uh, interesting uh, solutions. And when they shortlisted the ones that they wanted to call in for an interview, they revisited, well, where have they come from? From institutions they'd never heard of. There was not so many of the top flight, top tier uh, branded places. Uh, and what they got was people from many, many diverse backgrounds who were uh, original, creative, positively thinking about problems, as opposed to I got an A in this and a B in that and three of those, four of those. And so I, 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 to me, this is interesting because we know all of education is going through a big shift for lots of different reasons. Um, but I, I like that uh, flattening uh, of the entrance approach so that we don't have the cognitive bias of a branded university who might be producing mediocre students. Um, and so you, it's a better way of getting to know the person. So it's that space, it's a surf zone that I'm interested in, humans and technology. Yeah. So, and I'm gonna ask you that because I know you're a fan of, um, and you have this great quote from E.O. Wilson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You so remember you it. a natural philosopher's view of it. So maybe you want to talk to the audience about that thing because it's such a fascinating way to look at this whole human machine thing. Well, it, it is interesting. And this has stuck with me for a while. And I think it's coming up for a year now since you and I were sitting together on that panel at the FinTech Festival last year. And uh, I try not to use a quote too much, but whenever I get stuck, I go to this quote. And it's, uh, he's a social biologist. Uh, I had to look that up. I didn't know what it was, but uh, I think he invented his own space. And but he had said, uh, the problem with humanity is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And when you try and assemble that in your mind, it just puts a smile on your face, like, oh my goodness. And so whenever I'm having a problem with a project or, or I can't make progress in my business, I'm like, am I dealing with a paleolithic human, a medieval institution? or a godlike technology. And you know what? 
technology is plenty complicated, but you can usually figure it out or you can find someone who figured it out. It's much harder to figure out a medieval institution. And, you know, humans are still pretty paleolithic. We're, we're primal, um, we're self-serving, and uh, we're not that sophisticated at the end of the day. But in, in, in the world that we're moving forward into, this technology is just running over the horizon away from the comprehension of a lot of us. And that's why I feel strongly about the education. I just feel like saying, people, we need to look at this because it is shaping our societies, shaping our elections, is shaping how financial institutions relate to us. Um, it, it's going to have an effect on your life. You need to understand that. Uh, and, it can help you. Or and that gives me a great segue into what I wanted to ask you. I think what you're doing is incredible because I think you're trying to say, listen, let's educate people and get them to be aware of yeah. You're trying to bring the ingredient onto the border, and yes. that's a yes. great way. And you're trying to get people notice the ingredients in the border. Don't just do something. But yeah, you need to have a layer of the business. And I'm going to go to that medieval institutions bit. <laughs> you got to have businesses that are willing to put that on that to say, "I can use it for good." I will explain it. Yeah. And you got to have the superstructure of the regulation or the government stepping in to say, "If you don't do it, I will." So walk yes. us through that the medieval yes. institutions and your thoughts on that. I, I, I better be careful. I'm not going to name names. I, no, don't, no names. <laughs> when, when I worked for a bank and it was, uh, it was coming out of the subprime mortgage crisis, uh, we were trying to figure out mobile wallets. Um, uh, there were, and there was a bloom of possibilities. Uh, the bank At this point of time, I must interrupt you to tell you that we know your LinkedIn profile and we know the bank you're naming. Okay, well, I'll just say that <laughs> I've found this in every bank. So, But, uh, uh, you know, it's what was, um, we were trying to figure out the interoperability of all these different cards onto our app, our wallet, um, back-ended onto our uh, mobile banking system. And how do we make it all work in a nice manner? And so we did some information architecture and we laid out uh, something I call the four Fs. You know, what is fixed, what is firm, what is flexible, what is free. Now you've got to know what your degrees of freedom are with certain types of information. And when you go to the heart of that bullseye, uh, what was fixed was terms and conditions. So the, the legalese. And most people don't read the legalese when they just agree to a terms on that. They just click, 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 hit because they're just trying to move forward. Uh, that's a problem in and of its own right. But we were dealing with uh, all these different uh, terms and conditions from so many different uh, places. And the government in the US was getting really, really frustrated with everybody and their you know, own man maneuvering and manipulating it to have it their own way. And the government just said, sort it by this date or we're going to publish the terms and conditions and you will work with our set of rules. And the banks were like, no, no, we don't want that. So there, there is this kind of wiggle room between regulation, which I think is necessary. But some degree, uh, you come out from the firm to the flexible and just say, okay, there's maybe 20% wiggle room and some of the other things. Um, but if you just have it at the outer layer as a free-for-all and you know that people don't look at terms and conditions, then what you get is, I think, a calamitous uh, affair where people are borrowing money without really looking at what they've agreed to in, in, the, in the borrowing and the lending. And uh, so that, that's just an ex extreme example where I think regulation is required, but you've still got to have some latitude so that bank A is different from uh, bank B 
if I'm shopping around, I can make some comparisons knowing that I'm going to get some protection from the government. So, that, so Ian, that's we could up. continue talking about this for a few hours, and I'm sure I'm going to call you back and do one or two more episodes of this thing. But I did want to get in one particular thing yes. into the, uh, uh, and, and, and this is, uh, when you think about the next two or three years, when you mm -hmm. think about, you know, the things that we talked about, I mean, the, the yeah. God-like technology that there is out here, the availability yeah. of more data, uh, then you think about the human being and the cognitive biases that we have and how we are feeding that into the AI. Yeah. Lack of regulation, the explainable AI, the XAI that we just talked about, mm -hmm. and the fact that this is now touching more and more of your lives. Are you hopeful? I am. Are you worried? Hopeful. No, I, there's plenty to be worried about. There's no doubt about that. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the 3rd of November and see what that brings in the US. Um, but I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, I, we're living in an age, and I think you know, you'll find stuff online that confirms this. Uh, great anthropologists have talked about this. We're living in an age where there's more educated people uh, that are better connected than ever before. We're living in, a, in an era, uh, certainly when it comes to money, there's this large scale shift going on away from centralized banking to decentralized banking. I'm a big fan of that, not just in FinTech, but also in energy systems, water systems. I think the idea of just incremental scaling, uh, if you apply that to ecological systems, it's failing us miserably. You know, we can't just you know, endlessly consume and keep adding, keep adding uh, limitless growth. Um, so I'm really, but really when it comes optimistic. to data particularly, are you worried yeah. about the fact that a few companies are amassing so much data that, you know, they're going to run away with the game? Their well, AI is going to get is, better. That is happening. That is happening. And that, that's why I think we will see a, a shift in the seesaw. I think uh, the, the big techs in the U.S. are going to get regulated. Uh, it's, you know, it's within our lifetimes that uh, monopolies like uh, Marbell got broken up into six telcos. Um, could the U.S. government reach in and fractionalize those uh, uh, big tech companies? They might have a go. Let's see who gets into office next year. Um, but the, the strategy... Uh, against whatever those outcomes are is educate as many people as possible and uh, make sure there's enough smart uh, activists who who can through coalitions um, uh, it, it, it don't don't forget the early days of the internet you know when IBM was competing with open source and they couldn't and not enough young people today know this when IBM was constantly adding, uh, coders and programmers to try and compete with open source. They just eventually put their hands up and said, we can't. They're twice as big as we are. And they're all working for free because it, it's a passion. They believe that the internet should not be dominated by somebody like IBM. And I, I think today depends on you know, what you read and where you believe. It's about a third of the internet is based on Apache, which is you know, the contribution of all that uh, you know, uh, free work that was done by people who really cared about making sure these ecosystems are not dominated. Um, and so I think yeah, it is easy to see that natural Darwinian conclusion of, uh, you know, what's that Wally movie where there's one corporation that rules the world <laughs> by, and, by and large. And it's sometimes those movies are the best predictor, right? Of what's well, going to happen. I mean, you know, I, that's just that's just a linear extrapolation of Darwinian reduction. You know, get a fish tank, put fish in. At the end of the week, there'll be one fish left if you don't feed them. You know, I, I, uh, 
I remember as a young student, uh, there was a woman who used to appear at my bus stop every morning. She had a big lapel badge on. I think she was disappointed in the youth. So she used to wear her political opinion on a big lapel badge. And she would, uh, she, one of her lapel badges would say, always subvert the dominant paradigm. I had to go and look up a paradigm. I didn't know what paradigm was, but it was just that. So don't let the dominant thing become too dominant. It's almost your job to make sure there's competition in the mix. And that's why we've got to resist monopolies. And that's why we've got to resist uh, corporates getting too big. And I think, you know, every country understands it needs to do this in some way, shape or form. So I'm an optimist. I think like you, there's an Italian philosopher called Gramsci who talked about pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And mm. I think that's where we both are. I mean, that's you know, a great, a that's a great quote. Yeah, because uh, it, and I am, um, there, there's something that we <laughs> you used to be really aware of in California. There's so much hubris around what people believe is possible. And I always, I became an American citizen in 2008, but I've got a deep love for the country. Um, but there is a, there is a will there that is uh, unmeasurable. And we used to call it the delusion of competence. Like, okay, this guy was really good at this. He now thinks he's good at everything. And so he's going to you know, try his hand at all these other things. And I actually think you need a little bit of delusion to get out of bed each day. Um, and if we didn't have a little bit of delusion, we wouldn't try new things. You know, we've got to have, uh, uh, we've got to overcome uh, the rational part of our brain that says, no, don't do it. It's too risky. You know, it's like, uh, so that, that quote is, uh, is a good one. I might start using that. Thank you very much for the time, Ian. I think the biggest takeaway from this wonderful chat about how I think AI is shaping it, the two biggest things I'm taking away actually are the idea of explainable AI, the fact that, you know, everybody is going to make this whole thing. I love the story of the ingredients on the border having to be regulated by government. I think that day is going to come hopefully soon. And I think the second thing that unless we educate people about how this is actually going to take over, it has to be a bottom-up grassroots thing. Uh, we could be in danger of stumbling into something that we don't have any idea, okay. uh, you know, a dystopian future that we don't have idea about. Yeah. Once again, thank you very much for coming on the show, Ian. And it's been fascinating talking to you. And I'm sure we'll have you back again and talk about issues like privacy and ethics in greater detail. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Slaves to the Algo. I hope you are able to learn something new or find some eye-opening insight. We have new episodes coming out every week, sometimes twice a week. Each will seek to bring a different and fresh perspective to the topic. Please subscribe to the podcast channel and share it widely in your network. I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Stay safe personally in the age of COVID and stay relevant professionally in the age of AI. Thank you.